Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to that passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 7, which is our text, and then we'll dig into what we find here. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Among the marks of an ordered church is proper leadership, rightly qualified and functioning leaders. The two biblically identified offices that we find in Scripture are, one, overseer, elder, pastor. Those three terms are used interchangeably, and I'll get into that in a moment. And the second is deacon. Both of those offices are treated in this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are a member and if you were to take the bylaws of our church and look in Article 3... You will find those offices identified there, together with pastor as a separate but, uh, but related and uh, in many senses equivalent position. And in those bylaws, you will find this passage cited predominantly because that constitution and bylaws give priority to the qualifications that are given in Scripture. This doesn't mean that these two offices are the only offices that we have in the church. It is appropriate for a church to organize itself with additional ministries and and offices to, to conduct its work. But elders and deacons must exist as biblically defined and described for a church to exist with proper order. Now the terminology of the office that we're looking at this morning uh, is, uh, consists of three terms. You'll notice in verse 1 that it says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. And yet you'll notice I've already been talking about elders. Is it a case of confusion? No, it's a case that there are three terms that are used uh, roughly interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office. Uh, If you want to jot down a couple of texts and look at these later, Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and 28, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. In those texts, we find these three words used, and they are used interchangeably. Let me give you the example from Acts chapter 20. In verse 28, Paul says to the uh, people with whom he's having a conversation, identified in verse 17 as the elders of the church at Ephesus who had traveled to the island of Miletus to meet Paul. Paul says to these men, Be on guard for yourselves, themselves having been identified as the elders of that church. And also be on guard for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, that is to pastor, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now that text makes it abundantly clear that elders are receiving instructions to give oversight and to shepherd the flock. You see how those three terms are used together in uh, either direct interchangeability or in related function. I think it's fair to say that while the terms can be used interchangeably, there may be nuances of emphasis given by each of the three terms. The overseer, as the word itself would convey, has the responsibility of oversight of the life and the work of the church. It's a broad responsibility. It doesn't mean that the the, uh, overseers do all of the work themselves, but they give oversight to see that it's getting done in proper and orderly ways. 
Elders were identified, as you might think of the word elder meaning old, as folks who represent spiritual wisdom and experience. And that would be something very important for one giving leadership. And then, of course, the word shepherd is a very precious and sweet term, isn't it? To describe the work of, a, uh, of an elder who is tasked with leading and caring for the flock of God. Feeding, guarding, protecting. It's a, it's a dimension of the ministry that's patterned on the very ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. Who in John chapter 10 describes himself as the good shepherd. And whom Peter, uh, in his words to his fellow elders, says, shepherd the flock as under shepherds. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the, the uh, crown of glory. So these terms have, have nuances that certainly give them significance in terms of the who and the what of their work. Now for our purposes today, I'm going to probably be using the word elder a lot. Because that's the terminology we use for a group of men in our congregation these words also applied to the individuals, two of them now, whom we designate and call as pastor. It's not because they are somehow distinguished from the uh, qualifications, particularly of elders, but it's a way that we have of speaking of their relative roles and relationships, both to the other elders and to the congregation at large. Now, much could be said about the work of elders and their functions. The New Testament has much to say. But our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is focused on qualifications for the office. What are the qualifications that can be expected to be satisfied and fulfilled in one who would be an elder? Now I would point out to you that as you read through this list there are some ideas that are not present. You will not find that intelligence is listed as a requirement. That's not to say that intelligence is a bad thing, but it may remind us that sometimes we overrate things and that there are other qualifications and qualities that matter more. It doesn't say that the elder has to be a forceful or extroverted personality. It doesn't say that the person must be glib. It doesn't say he must have a sense of humor, uh, athletic ability, muscular physique, be a sports fan and a fan of the right football team. Those are not the attributes that are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This passage has plenty of them to say, however. In fact, if you looked at the notes, you already see that by my count, we have 15 qualifications given here in this text for an elder. In a few moments, we're going to go through them. We have to go through them quickly. I'm going to do my best. If you need a pizza break, wave your hands and we'll see if we can arrange one. But I want to at least survey and deal with each of them briefly so that we get a good working basis of understanding here. And I'd like to encourage you in the growth groups that you're participating in, you'll see the questions on the back relate to some of these. And in your own private study, work on these and, and dig more deeply into what is involved with each of them. I'll say more about why I believe that to be important as we conclude the message in a little while. As I thought about those 15 characteristics, I thought, is there, is, can I, could I in any way distill that down to one word? I thought about it, and the best word I could come up with was the word integrity. Here's how the dictionary defines integrity. Moral or ethical strength, character, fiber, honesty. The quality of being honest, honorable, incorruptible, upstanding. The condition of being free from defects or flaws. Durability, firmness, solidity, soundness, stability, strength, and wholeness. In short, when we take that definition and, and lay it into the, uh, the text before us and think about the qualifications of an elder... I think we could safely say that integrity involves consistently owning and living out God's moral standards. These qualifications are about integrity of character, and particularly the moral character of an elder. Now, integrity is desirable in any person's life. Integrity is important in any person who would aspire to leadership in any context or situation. It's desirable there, but its absence is fatal to spiritual leadership. 
That raises the stakes as it pertains to the 15 qualifications that Paul gives us in this text. So this text just calls us to realize that the elders of the church must meet biblical qualifications for the office. So what are they? You've got 15 in the notes. Just track with them as we walk our way through, run our way through, crawl our way through, whatever it takes to get through them. The first one in that first verse is above reproach. And by that we mean that he gives no ground for credible accusation. I believe this term is listed first because I believe that logically it serves as a summary for the whole of the list. It's a term that, uh, that says this elder is above credible accusation in those areas of character that follow in the list. Matters that are of serious consequence and not petty or minor flaws. The word that's used here literally means not able or not giving a handle upon which one can grab. A fault that could be exploited by Satan, our enemy, or others to discredit the elder and, by extension, the ministry of the church. One writer defined it this way. He says, the elder who is blameless is one against whom it is impossible to bring any charge of wrongdoing such as could stand impartial examination. Now that last part is very important to remember because anybody can be accused of anything. Accusations can be very cheap and free and criticism can be very, uh, very pervasive in certain situations. This is not saying that the elder is never criticized or accused of anything. Sometimes accusations are very unfair and unfounded. Sometimes accusations and criticisms are based in misinterpreted facts and rumors. Sounds kind of like this. Did you hear that? Fill in the blank. No evidence, no certain knowledge. In court they would call that hearsay and inadmissible, but, but in our common conversation sometimes we're willing to receive those things as gospel truth. And yet they may be very mistaken. We know how rumors work if you've ever played the child game gossip. Remember how that works? You start something at one end of the row and it gets whispered down the line and the last person says what they heard and it usually bears absolutely no resemblance to what was said in the first case. That's the nature of rumor mongering. Sometimes accusations are just matters of, uh, of difference of opinion, sometimes very petty, sometimes bigger, but still not life-changing or consequential might sound like this. What's wrong with that guy? We were talking about the virtues of my Chevrolet truck, and he turned around and bought a Ford. I strategically chose the Chevrolet and Ford in the order they are because I know this congregation. <laughs> there may be a couple Dodges out there, but there are mostly Fords. Now, is owning a Ford a moral infraction? I'll let the Chevy owners judge that. You know, there are sometimes accusations that are very serious, and they're based on the bearing of false witness. You'll be familiar, perhaps, if not, go back and read in 1 Kings chapter 21 the story of Ahab and Jezebel in the matter of Naboth's vineyard. It's a case where the treacherous Jezebel arranged a, a a false accusation against the honorable, godly Jezreelite Naboth, hired two men of Belial, the King James calls them, worthless witnesses to confirm this charge, and Naboth was executed for something that he was not guilty of on the basis of false, malicious accusations. Does that ever happen? You see why it's important not that this be a matter of the man never being accused of anything, but it's a matter of an accusation that cannot stick. An accusation that does not withstand impartial investigation and examination. I think it works out practically in this way. When someone would make an accusation against an elder, if he's blameless, 
I mean, number one, if he makes an accusation against an elder, Paul later in this book gives an, uh, a description of how that accusation is to be taken. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, uh, in time as we continue our work through the book. But if you hear an accusation against an elder, if the man is blameless, your response would likely be, I find that hard to believe. As I know that man, that just does not seem to be in character with who he is. I know him, and I know what he stands for and how he lives. That just does not fit. Does it say it's not possible? No. But it does say that it's not credible on its face. Well, the second qualification we find here is that he must be the husband of one wife. That is, exclusively devoted to the woman who is his wife. If I were to cast a corollary to that one, I would word it this way. His relationships with his wife and other women must be circumspect. Now, some, th- this one is one that gets a lot of discussion and debate. And we don't have the time to dig into all that this morning, though it's not an unworthy pursuit to do so. Some interpreters focusing on the word one would argue that Paul was prohibiting polygamy or that he was demanding that an overseer be a married man or that if he, a man has become widowed, he is not permitted to remarry if he is an, uh, an elder or that a man who has been divorced or divorced and remarried is not qualified to be an elder. Those views arise from the focus on what the meaning of one is. But there's another angle in which this term must be considered, and I think it's the one that is most uh, indisputable and yet one that is very often overlooked. And that's a qualitative description. This is all about the character of, a, of an elder's quality in this whole list. And so what's the quality of his character that would be represented in his marital relationship? It means that he is, as literally this could be translated, a one-woman man. That means that his focus and his attention and his affections are reserved exclusively for his wife. What does that rule out? It rules out promiscuity. It rules out uh, lustful thinking. It rolls out flirtatious behavior. And the irony is that many a man who has been married only to one woman is not truly a one-woman man. He's given to these kinds of, of, of sinful indulgences that ultimately will bring ruin or will discredit him as a trustworthy leader. And so I take it with this one that there's a very tall order in terms of the, the, uh, the uh, morality and the moral standards of an elder. Third, we find the term temperate. And there you see the translation or the explanation. He exercises self-control. Uh, this word often has predominantly a negative cast, and it's the idea of the control of sinful impulses and ex- excesses. Literally, the word means uh, wineless or unmixed with wine, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here because he takes up the issue of alcohol in verse 3. Here I think he's using this word in a figurative sense to understand someone who is alert, watchful, vigilant, clear-headed. In other words, one who is not given to the excesses that would cloud his judgment as wine in excess would 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 tend to do. This is a person who must be free from rash or impulsive decisions and behaviors. He's one who is regulated in the ways that he responds to life situations. Similar to it is the next one, which we find translated prudent. The prudent man exercises good judgment and good sense. If temperate is more the idea of restraining evil impulses, prudence is more the exercise positively of good judgment and good sense in the making of decisions or the taking of courses of action. Some would say even that the result of being temperate is that one becomes prudent. If you exclude the one, you make place for the other. That may be. uh, At any rate, it is an interesting correlation of these two qualities with one another. I take it that the man who is prudent is serious about spiritual things, 
Spiritual things are not a, a matter of, in, of inconsequential importance or a matter, a laughing matter to be taken lightly. It doesn't say that he's cold and insensitive. It doesn't say that he lacks a sense of humor. But it says that he understands that all things are not uh, occasions of, uh, of uh, the lightheartedness that comes with humor. To be prudent, he must live wisely and be sensible in the courses of behavior in his life. Now, related even further to those two is the next one, which is respectable. We have it there uh, explained as leading a well-ordered life. Uh, You might say, well, what's that have to do with respectability? And the connection generally understood is that one of the marks that garnered respect in the ancient world, and I suspect garners respect in our world today, is a person whose life is lived according to order, standards. Uh, Think of the various expressions that we use that use this terminology. When uh, you enter a courtroom and the judge has not yet made his or her appearance, you'll hear a lot of of noise. You might hear just the hubbub of numerous conversations going on among people. You might hear some laughter if somebody's engaging the lighter side. The conversations may may be about the trailblazers or the Seahawks or uh, uh, what car you're driving or other things like that. But there comes a moment where the bailiff says, order in the court. And in that pronouncement, things change. What's the bailiff announcing? There are certain protocols and norms for courtroom behavior when the judge takes the bench, and it's time to observe that order, to behave and act in accordance with the protocols of the courtroom. And those protocols are upheld throughout the proceedings when the judge is there. Sometimes it's the judge banging down the gavel, which says, uh, knock it off. Or it's the judge saying, you say that again, you have that outburst again, I'll take you out, have you taken out of the courtroom, or I'll hold you in contempt. There are penalties that, assess, that are assigned to violation of the order of the courtroom. Sometimes we might save a person, uh, or a, you might save yourself, I'm getting my financial affairs in order. What does that mean? That where you might have a few uh, uh, debts or bills that are behind or where you're, you uh, haven't designated what's going to happen with your estate upon your death or considerations of that sort, you are seeking to get those matters resolved so that they are all lined up according to the norms and standards and expectations for, in that case, your finances. So when this term is used for an elder, it speaks broadly of his life. It says that his life is ordered according to God's standards. He knows what God says is the, uh, the way of living for Christ and living out Christian virtues, and this, this person brings those to pass in his life and practice. The next qualification we find is hospitable. And there, that term involves the desire to serve the needs of of others. The term literally came from a word that meant love of strangers. And it was commonly used in the culture of Paul's day to refer to the fact that often when people traveled, uh, accommodations would be scarce for them. The, uh, the inns or hotels were not on every corner of an intersection like you'll find along the interstate highways in our country. They were very few and far between, and very often the ones that you could find were not places you'd feel safe to go to sleep. So what would a person do if traveling? Well, it might be nice to find refuge in an elder's home, someone who could be reliable. And so the qualification here is that the elder is one who extends himself in in hospitality in caring for the needs of others. The seventh characteristic qualification we find here, how am I doing? Are we making good time? There's no clock in this room, so I have no idea what time it is. The seventh is able to teach, and that we have uh, explained as being competent for the ministry of the Word. Among all these traits, this is probably the one that, lend, that, that uh, tilts toward function um, as well as character, but I think it does speak of a qualification as an aptitude, in this case explicitly, for teaching. Not surprising that it's included because in Scripture when we see the responsibilities of an elder regularly given priority in that role is the task and the ministry. I wouldn't even like to call it a task because it's enjoyable for those who are called to it. And that is the task of ministering and preaching and teaching the Word. 
If you look in our bylaws, you'll see that that is a priority listed for our pastor, and rightly so. It doesn't say that he's the only pulpit voice in the church, but it does say that, that uh, the elder must be able and apt to minister the word in teaching and preaching it. Having this aptitude does not mean that he has a gift of gab, and it doesn't mean that he's an entertaining public speaker as his strongest virtues. Those may be of value, but they're secondary to what the real heart of aptitude and teaching entails. Such things as having been given by the sovereign disposition of the Holy Spirit, the gift of teaching. It means that he has a, a, a desire to be a diligent student of the Word. So he gets into the Bible and he studies it to know it. As a result of his study, he's able to teach the biblical truth with confidence and accuracy. And on the flip side, he's able to discern error and call it out and rebuke it where it exists. All of that goes into the fabric of being apt to teach. The eighth qualification we find as we enter into verse 3 you're not addicted to wine. And as you see it uh, paraphrased there, he exercises self-control with respect to alcohol. Uh, this one's going to tie into the next two that follow, I think, in giving us a larger picture. But before we get to those other qualities, uh, this one taken on itself is just what it says. He's not one who is addicted or given to excess in the use of alcohol. You might put it this way, that he's not one whose reputation is that of being the party boy and the, the uh, great drinker uh, of, the, of the culture. Word describes a person who sits long or tarries at the wine. The Bible uses that kind of terminology uh, to denote a means of excess in the matter. Now, following from that one in verse 3, uh, and it's even joined with the conjunction or, because I think there is a natural co connection correlation there, and that is the issue of not being pugnacious. That's a good word, isn't it? You ever use that with your child? You're being pugnacious today. Maybe you use it with your spouse. I don't know. But it's the idea of one who's spoiling for a fight or looking to get into a rumble. Um, and that's certainly, uh, in this case particularly, I think it has to do with physical. We're going to see the, the quality of not being quarrelsome later, which I think more focuses on being contentious in word. But here... It's related in following upon not being given to excess of wine uh, as what may often be a natural consequence. Literally, the term means not as a giver of blows, or as your King James may have it translated, not a striker. That's a, uh, an, active, uh, an accurate translation of the term because it does have the, the picture of a brawl. It says that the person who is to be an elder must not settle his disputes with blows but rather must react to situations calmly and find constructive ways of resolving differences rather than methods of brutality. I have a friend who, in his days before Christ, um, would certainly not have met this qualification. He was a, a cowboy, and his pattern of life would be at the end of a hard day of cowboying to migrate to the local bar. And he put it this way as we were having a conversation one time about this. He says, you know, you come in and you've had kind of a rough day and you're looking for something to wind down and relax a bit, so you, you start having a few drinks. And after a few drinks, you start feeling a lot better than you did when you came in. And so you start engaging some of the others who have come to the bar for their evening experience. And, and pretty soon you get into a little bit of lighthearted banter with one another and a little bit of, of playful jabbing at one another and then you have a few more drinks and the banter continues but it's not quite as playful as it was now those words that were fun and laughable have turned to fighting words and he said when they become fighting words then it gets settled out in the parking lot and ends up with broken noses and knocked out teeth skin knuckles black eyes and various other assorted trophies of the evening you see how the picture follows. The, the inhibitions that can be reduced by the excess of alcohol resulting in uh, pugnacious behavior. The elder is not to be so characterized. The tenth qualification is that he is gentle, meaning that he is considerate, gracious, and forgiving. Again, I think this can be drawn as a contrast with the, the way of solving differences, not by duking it out in the parking lot, but rather by finding the, the graces of soul 
that are considerate of the situation of another. Treat people with grace and with forgiveness when it is needed. The person who's going to be gentle isn't going to keep a grudge list. He's not going to seek retaliation along the way, but rather he truly is willing to be forgiving and of a mind to reconcile when there's been conflict. The next quality says that he's peaceable. And that you see in your notes, not quarrelsome by disposition. If Pugnacious looks at more physical disputing, this characteristic, I think, looks more at verbal uh, contention. This person is reluctant to enter into uh, quarrels, I'll call it. I had a professor in, uh, at the university one time who made this statement. He said, people quarrel because they don't know how to argue. And his point was that there are ways in which you can, through legitimate argument, resolve issues. You put claims or ideas out on the table, you present good reasons, pro and con, and you make some well-informed decisions. You may have two people who take opposing views in an argument, but they're not doing so with malicious spirit. They're doing so with the quest of getting the best sort of outcome and result. Quarrelsome, on the other hand, is to say... Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Is so, is not. And back and forth. You see how that gets nowhere. All that does is elevate emotions and create government shutdowns. <laughs> Just a little political commentary there. The person who is not peaceable, but is rather quarrelsome instead, is one who browbeats or who might seek to... Uh, to win with threats, or who behaves like a bully, a verbal bully. And you can understand where in an elder such behaviors are not going to promote peace, they're going to promote trouble and disharmony and disunity within the body rather than the unified character of the, of the church that Jesus intends us to have. Twelfth, he's to be free from the love of money, which speaks to his motives and says that his motives are pure. It's a perverse corruption of the ministry to be in it for what you can get out of it. It doesn't say that it's illegitimate to pay a pastor. In fact, as, as uh, Paul makes abundantly clear, it is appropriate to pay a pastor. But this does speak to the elder's motives in terms of what he seeks to get from his service. And it's corruption of the ministry if he serves for sordid gain. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 makes that explicit. When, he, when Peter there charges the elders, he says that they should serve not for sordid gain. And then in that text, he puts three pairs of contrasts together in making his points. The point of not being a lover of money does not necessarily have to do with how much you've got. It's possible to love money and be poor. It's perhaps more of a challenge to not love money when you have it. But the fact is that this is getting to an attitude toward and a desire for, um, as much as it is the reality of what you possess. 13 out of 15, we're getting there. Manages his own household well. By that I mean he is focused on the care of his family. Up to this point, Paul has been pretty much giving terms without comment, just terms in a list. But for the remainder of this passage, you'll notice that he appends to the qualification a little bit of amplification and explanation. This is the first one uh, of that sort. So it says there, as we look at verse 4, one who manages his own household well, by that management meaning keeping his children under control with all dignity, and the parenthetic insertion, if he can't handle his own family, how can he be expected to handle the church? That's the logic that's involved here. Well, what's it mean to manage his own household well? I take it that what Paul is calling for here is exemplary leadership. Anybody who's raised a four-year-old knows that you know what I'm going to say. Your leadership may be ineffective at various points. But would this mean that if your four-year-old throws a temper tantrum in the church preschool class that he's disqualified from being an elder? Uh, I would say no, and I'll say more about that sort of thing as we wind up here in a few minutes. But I do believe that what is said here is that this man is one who is attentive to the, the goals and purposes and direction for his family. 
and certainly by his example and with other legitimate means at his disposal. He seeks to lead his family to honor God. Now, there are some remedies that might be uh, uh, brought into practice with unmanageable children that are not acceptable. I mean, tie them up and lock them in a closet. We sometimes make that sort of, of observation uh, lightly, but we have seen where people have done that. You, read the, you see the stories in the news from time to time where abuse of that sort is taken. That's not the kind of, of uh, uh, ideal that Paul is setting forth here. I recall a number of years ago in Portland there was a, uh, a couple who were brought up on criminal charges because they had... Uh, following principles they had been taught for disciplining children, they were spanking the child, and they'd been told that you spank the child until the crying is no longer rebellious, but is rather soft and apparently penitent. Well, they, they applied this piece of advice in the spanking of this child until the child passed out. And then, in panic, they put the child in the bathtub in cold water hoping to revive the child and instead the child died and they were brought up on criminal charges um, for the death of that child that is not the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here and he would not say that if you have to resort to such measures you should in order to satisfy this qualification I think the reasonable understanding of this is that this is a man whose life uh, makes it a priority to set the direction for his family. And he uses those, those, those uh, balanced and reasonable means of leading that would be uh, honoring to God. And I would contend effective in the lives of those children. Fourteenth requirement is that he's not a new convert. And by that we mean he is mature in his faith. A novice, as the term is used there in the text, or new convert as my translation has it, means one who is newly planted, just became, has just become a Christian. It's not to say that age is a guarantee of maturity, and it doesn't say that because a person's professed faith as a Christian for a long time that he's mature automatically. But it does say the realization that you wouldn't expect a brand new Christian to manifest the kind of maturity called for here to lead the church effectively. And so the expectation here is don't rush to put a novice into the office. Rather, give that person some time to grow and mature in respect to these qualifications and then consider such a one for the office of elder. One of the perils of being a, a novice, Paul identifies here, is that it's easy to get proud and conceited. It's a heady thing to, to quickly be advanced to the, the top of the pile, so to speak, when you have have uh, started out at the bottom. And so the peril here is that being given such a heady opportunity, you might get puffed up in pride. That was the fault, of, that was the, the sin of Satan. He was puffed up in pride, and as the proverb tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Hence the warning uh, and the qualification given. Finally, he's to have a good reputation with those outside the church. By that we mean he is respected by unbelievers for the consistent witness of his life. He's a good neighbor. He's a respectable part of the community. This doesn't say that everybody in the community is going to agree with him. And frankly, there are going to be times where you bear the condemnation of the culture as a badge of honor. Because there are times when the culture will hate you because they hate Christ. They will, they will hate you because they deny and refuse to consider or receive the truth of God's word. But those exceptions aside, this says that in the way that an elder conducts his affairs, he ought to enjoy the respect not only within the church, but of those outside the church. He must be known for those kinds of graces that are are described in this list in the previous qualifications. They must be evident to those who are even outside the church. And so as we wind up this morning, I just want to try to recap where we've been. 
The premise of this message and this text is that those who would be elders in the church, or overseers as Paul uses the term, those who aspire to that office desire a noble thing. You might say, don't let a man anywhere close to this because uh, this would be all for wrong motives that he would desire to be an elder. That's not the case. But it does say that those who would aspire to the office need to be qualified to fill it. Those qualifications speak primarily to the man's integrity, which involves his moral character. In short, it's a matter that he has the right convictions, God-given, biblically-ordered convictions, and he lives them consistently. While integrity is most desirable in any form of leadership, its absence is fatal to spiritual leadership. Now, by now, that may have raised a question for you. And that is, by these standards, who is qualified to be an elder? Who's qualified to be a pastor? Who's qualified to be an overseer? And so let me seek to give us some things to consider as factors in answering that question. And why do you need to answer that question? There's a very practical reason. If you're a member of this church, from time to time, and at least once a year, you are called upon to affirm appointments to the eldership of this church. Recently, we had such a, an affirmation with Pastor Joe when we voted to call him as our youth and associate pastor. We had such an affirmation in our annual elections in December for elders from within the body serving as the Council of Elders officially and pictured on the bulletin board out in the foyer. From time to time and at least yearly, if you remember this church, you're called upon to ask that, answer that question, is the person who's being set before us qualified for this office? So here's some things that I think need to be considered alongside the descriptions that we've just sought to work through through this list. Remember, first of all, that there's no one perfect except Jesus. So when Paul set forth these qualifications, it had to be with the understanding either that the leaders that are appropriately qualified for the office are less than perfect, or that the church would have no leadership. Now, it makes no sense to set out qualifications and say, well, see, nobody can meet them, so the church should be leaderless. Instead, he could have saved seven verses and just said, don't have leaders, because nobody is fit. How's that going to work out for you? Nor would it be to say, it doesn't matter who these people are. Pick them for whatever whim satisfies you, uh, because nobody could meet the qualifications that ought to be established. It doesn't mean that either. So the standards that we have spent time this morning looking at must not be applied with the expectation that an overseer, elder, pastor will perfectly conform and never fail. Now, at the same time, no elder should see this caveat as cover for bad behavior. No elder should say, well, I'm not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. So the fact that my life is a scandal is just a, a testimony to the fact that I'm fallen and I need a Savior. Well, yeah, you're right. You're fallen you need a Savior. But that does not serve as cover for justifying you to be in the office of elder if you do not uh, manifest a reasonable expectation of meeting these qualifications. In fact, it would seem to me that awareness of our weaknesses ought to provide for us the agenda for personal growth. And that applies whether you're an elder or a believer in the body of Christ in relationship, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of God brings to mind those areas where we fall short. And in His power and with His uh, enablement, and with appropriate resolve, we walk in obedience more maturely day by day. The measure of the man is more a matter of his life habits than a matter of his 100% perfect conformity. So it would be a matter of saying, as I see this man, 
in the wholeness of his life? What is the pattern that is evident in his life? Do these qualifications characterize him consistently? Not perfectly necessarily in all cases, but do they consistently characterize him? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I believe it's safe to say that that individual is qualified to be an elder. Now, are all of these qualifications of equal magnitude? All are important. If they weren't important, Paul would not have put them in the list. But I suspect that as you look at them, you can see that in some cases, it doesn't take much transgression to disqualify one. I mean, think about the difference. Suppose you've got the, uh, the elder who has a four-year-old that throws a temper tantrum in the nursery. Is that grounds for disqualifying him? I would say no. I would say that that's not a habit or pattern or a reflection of a defect in his parenting. What if uh, his wife shows up at a, uh, a church gathering covered with the evidences of battering. He just got mad once and happened to take it out on his wife. Would one say, well, he normally treats her pretty well. I guess one beating's okay. I don't think so either. The point here is that using spirit-guided discernment and judgment, there are times when we have to say, there are certain of these matters that are more consequential than others. And it may take less to at least temporarily, if not permanently, disqualify one from serving as an elder based on some infraction here. Now, do you see where this is heading? It's heading to a tall order for any church, a tall order for spiritual discernment. Because we have to know how to weigh realities and to weigh evidences and make decisions that reflect the best judgments of which we're capable. Even in the presenting of elders, those who are tasked with nominating them, are, or a search committee looking for a pastor, do their diligence in investigating the character and the reputation of the person under consideration. That's right and good and appropriate because there ought to be evidence that, uh, that uh, shows that he is characterized by these qualities and qualifications. One more thing to consider. These qualifications are not about what a man used to be. Rather, they are about what he is now. We all come to Christ from different backgrounds, at different ages, with different life experiences. And I suspect that some might be reading this list and saying, man, I used to really fall short in every one of these areas. I should not be an elder. May I simply say that the grace of God is a wonderful healing thing. And that by the grace of God, many a man who once was, not one who would be qualified for this office, by the transforming of grace of God can manifest a character proven through a reasonable process of maturity that he indeed meets the qualifications today. That's another factor that weighs into discerning to be an elder. So to those among us who may aspire to the office of elder, may I say that this text provides a standard and a guide for your personal growth agenda. Take these characteristics and, and assess yourself. There's a book that was written a number of years ago entitled The Measure of a Man, written by a man named Gene Getz. I took some consolation 
from that book because the book's about that thick and essentially what it is is going through these characteristics one at a time, a chapter to each one. I think I did pretty well in time uh, this morning, though I won't say that as a point of pride. But that book can uh, help you see uh, in greater depth what these characteristics look like and, and can provide a helpful guideline for developing of these qualities of character in your life if you aspire to the office of an elder. Furthermore, you don't have to aspire to the office of an elder to see the benefit of these kind of traits as a manifestation of a faithful Christian walk. And as I've already said, for those of us who are members of this congregation, periodically and at least annually, we're called to confirm elders, thus appointing them to the leadership of this church. We need to be people equipped to discern by an understanding of what we find in this text. Why does it all matter ultimately? Because if a church is going to be healthy, it's got to have qualified leadership. And God hasn't given us, uh, uh, and God has not left us at sea without any guidance for discerning that, but rather he's given us texts like this that can be useful to us in making those God-directed responses. I'll ask the worship team to come now, and we will bow and close in prayer. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the truth of this text and are reminded that leadership in your church is a very important matter. We realize that the health of the church depends upon the health of its leadership, and so we pray for our leaders. We pray for pastors Bill and Joe and ask that you will empower them by your spirit, that they will, will walk in obedience to you in all respects, that their lives will be exemplary to those they serve and in the community in which they live. For the others of our elders, Lord, we pray the same and ask that you will find each of us to be men faithful to you in all respects and that we will find our, our joy in serving Jesus in this congregation. And Lord, as we think of these matters, we just are reminded once again of the great grace that our Lord Jesus has provided in our salvation that transforms us from those who couldn't meet to the smallest degree any of these qualifications, but by his transforming grace has made us uh, like himself in the process of our Christian growth. We commit our ways to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're welcome to stand and join us as we close out with this final song.